Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello folks, this is Ben and you're listening to episode 90 of my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thank you very much for joining me and welcome along as always. My chat this week is with the highly respected and much lauded Canadian photographer Donald Weber. As always, let's do a bit of housekeeping before I introduce him properly. If you do enjoy this podcast and you think it's worth the price of a cup of coffee per episode, then please do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription or if you prefer, make a larger occasional donation at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. Do please leave a positive review on iTunes so that others may find out about it. And if you know deep in your soul that your website sucks, but you don't have the time or inclination to do anything about it, let me know. I will happily do the whole damn thing at a ridiculously reasonable rate using the peerless Squarespace platform. Now, a quick announcement from the lovely folks at your loyal sponsor, the Charcoal Book Club. The third annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Charcoal Publishing Prize is open for entries from now until the 10th of December. You can submit now by going to charcoalbookclub.com and clicking on Portfolio Review in the top left corner. So what does all that mean? Well, the Chico Review will take place at the end of March 2019 and is a juried photo book retreat that takes place over six nights at Chico Hot Springs Resort near Livingston in Montana. 45 photographers will be selected by the jury and invited to spend the week taking part in portfolio reviews, artist lectures, panel discussions, and getting together over drinks in the saloon and the hot springs. That's why it's called Chico Hot Springs, folks. The all-star panel of speakers and reviewers will include the following people. Todd Heido, Mark Steinmetz, Andrea Modica, Alex Webb, Rebecca Norris Webb, Aperture, Pier 24 Photography, Chose Commune, TBW Books, and many others. So not only is it a rare chance to showcase your projects and workshop ideas with some of the best in the business, but one grand prize winner will receive the coveted Charcoal Publishing Prize, which means one lucky photographer will earn the right to be published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. I'm massively looking forward to this. There will be a special episode of the podcast from the whole shebang, as well as a number of chats with some of the aforementioned photographers. As an invited media partner, I will be hosting a couple of panels. I will be talking photography to all and sundry. I'll be looking at some people's work. I'll be hanging out in the hot springs and I'll be partying quite hard or as hard as my advanced years will now allow, which isn't very hard at all. But I will be enjoying myself. And uh, if you want to submit, you can submit now by going to charcoalbookclub.com and clicking on portfolio review in the top left corner. While you're there, check out this month's book of the month. Wood River Blue Pool by Joanne Walters, curated by Sandra Phillips. Uh, if you love photo books, join the club. Use the code of small voice to claim a free book of your choice when you do. So prior to photography, Donald Weber originally trained as an architect and worked with Ren Koolhaas's Office for Metropolitan Architecture in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, he is a photographer whose work explores the infrastructures of power in conjunction with the shadow states of globalised violence, societal, cultural and economic. Donald is the author of four books. His first, Bastard Eden, Our Chernobyl, won the Photo Lucida Book Prize and asked a simple question, what is daily life actually like in a post-atomic world? 
Interrogations was his second book about post-Soviet authority in Ukraine and Russia and uh, went on to much acclaim, selected to be included in Martin Parr and Jerry Badger's seminal The Photo Book, A History, Volume 3. Barricade, The Euromaiden Revolt is a book about the smoking language of revolution made in collaboration with Ukrainian photographer Arthur Bondar. And his latest, War Sand, tells the story of D-Day from myth to micron. Donald is the recipient of numerous awards and fellowships, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Lang Taylor Prize, the Duke and Duchess of York Prize, two World Press Photo Awards, and he was a finalist for the prestigious Scotiabank Photography Prize. His diverse photography projects have been exhibited as installations, exhibitions and screenings at festivals and galleries worldwide, including the United Nations, Museum of the Army at Les Invalides in Paris, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Portland Museum of Art, the Art Gallery of Ontario and the Royal Ontario Museum. Donald is noted for his teaching, public presentations and workshops. He has three times been named Master for World Press Photo's Dupe Swart Masterclass and chaired the documentary category of the World Press Photo Awards in 2015. He's represented by Circuit Gallery in Toronto and is on the faculty of the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague of the Netherlands in the Fine Art and Photography Departments. So now Donald is going to be in London a little more for his PhD studies. It was brilliant to be able to grab him uh, while I had the chance. And this being a small voice, we weren't in a plushly appointed sound studio in Soho, guys. We were sitting on the floor of his somewhat cramped hotel room uh, where we, despite that inconvenience, had the following extremely enjoyable chat. I hope you enjoy it too. Yeah, I think maybe it'd be nice to start with what you're up to at the moment because you did mention this PhD you're going you're gonna to be doing. When does that all kick off? PhD, well, I guess technically it kicked off uh, yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah. When I went and uh, got my student card, which was kind of funny. But officially October 11th. Okay. So that's the beginning. And that's going to be at, at Goldsmiths here in London. Yeah. Um, and what, what, do you, what is it going to be in? That's a really good question. That's what I still struggle with because the the program, so it's in the Department of Visual Cultures and within the Visual Cultures Department there's this thing, entity called the Center for Research Architecture, um, which on the surface it makes it sound like it's about architecture, but the way I see it is more about the uh, architecture of research. So the idea of, uh, say, conceptualizing something or really exploring the notion of where do things come from, but specifically in a visual way. But all that being said, that's very whatever uh, out there. For me, it's, well, I don't even, to be honest, it's a difficult question to answer. I guess I need to answer it soon, but... Well, well PhDs have, you know, it's a sort of mystery to me because I, I, you yeah. know, I don't, I don't quite understand them because there is this sort of slight kind of nebulousness to the whole the whole process yeah. where you kind of start doing something vaguely in the direction of what you're interested in and then yeah and then <laughs> it ends up I mean sort of the reason I ended up really wanting to do one was about five years ago Max Pam the Australian photographer of all people he he he, he was looking at a project I was sort of in the middle of and he said why don't you just do a PhD and sort of formalize this process so. That to me really kind of caught me off guard, but looking more into the idea of a PhD and what it could do for uh, not an academic, but a practitioner. I still very much consider myself a practitioner and want to be a practitioner, but I think a PhD is also very much about just sort of, I think really reaching someplace that you didn't know necessarily existed, say intellectually and creatively inside of you. And then at the same time, 
we are working on, I mean, I do, I work on multi-year projects, so why not slightly formalize it a little bit? Also, for me, I'm really interested in, say, expanding my own, uh, not necessarily a network, but what I like about the Center for Research Architecture is that it is architects, human rights activists, photographers, filmmakers, artists, all kinds of different sort of um, practices that when they collide together, you can really, I think, make something engaging and profound and interesting. Another aspect for me, particularly with this uh, research architecture place, part of their um, their remit, I guess, is forensic architecture. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard that, which is led by this um, architect named uh, I.L. Weitzman, who I read his book called Hollowland, I don't know, eight years ago or something. And uh, I remember looking at the, who is this guy, and I saw in the bio that he was a professor at Goldsmith. So that's kind of where the connection came from. And uh, he's managed to sort of maybe collide between the art worlds, but he's much more concerned about I can talk about something, and if I talk about it, others can engage with it. So he's actually creating evidence and such for court cases. And, and that, to me, is maybe where photography has maybe drifted away from, or at least documentary photography, for me, is sort of drifted away from that remit of what can it actually do. That, to me, is interesting. And it's, uh, I can, as you say, it's sort of interesting to suddenly be mixing with people from different disciplines, because they can bring a whole new kind of perspective yep. i think we all get very kind of uh, in our own little kind of bubbles don't we and and we're yeah. we're mixing with people who have similar experiences so i can see why that would be really in- intellectually very interesting and stimulating yeah i mean maybe some people see me as slightly pessimistic about photography i mean i still absolutely love photography and i love the act and doing photography but there are certain things that start to slightly, or I've started to sort of maybe scratch at the surface of the of the practice of it, and uh, I just find it a little hermetic at times, and it's almost becoming predictable. You know, there's Perifoto, and I just went to Unseen, and then it's Arl, and then it's this, and it's this, and it's this, and it, it just sort of starts rolling into a, a giant uh, snowball of sameness. And I, I think also that's why I'm interested in the PhD, is sort of to force you out into some other kind of universe and let's go see what it is yeah 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 absolutely well i, I do want to sort of get into some of the the, the 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 things that preoccupy you or things that interest you in the in the in the business at the moment because i know you've got you've got some kind of you know kind of quite strongly held opinions on some of that stuff but I, let's get a bit of context first because i think people will definitely be familiar with certain of your projects which i want to talk about but you grew up in canada Mm-hmm. And and so and you you're currently living in in Amsterdam, yeah. Where you teach, do you? Yeah. So usually, well, I lived in Amsterdam up until about three weeks ago, but now I'm in Rotterdam and I teach in the Hague. Mm, okay. But sometimes it's just easier. Just Amsterdam is sort of a, a catch-all. But yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, teaching in the Hague, live in Rotterdam. So because one of the things that strikes me is this, you know, this kind of question of time management that we all have to face. Now you've suddenly uh-huh. taken on a whole, whole new commitment, but you've yeah. also got to balance your your other commitments, including making your own work. Have you kind of thought about how that's going to play out? Nope. Because <laughs> if you did, you probably just wouldn't have done it. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, okay, I can't quite say that. I haven't totally thought about it. But, um, I mean, what's nice about the teaching position that I have at the Royal Academy of Art is that it's not a full-time job, so I'm not there five days a week. There's definitely a burden and uh, and uh, 
you know, I'm teaching basically two full days a week, let's say. And then there's, you know, other things, uh, Wednesdays, say, I kind of reserve for school-related stuff. So that does give me a few days a week to then sort of focus on my uh, my own work. But start, I mean, I've really only been teaching on this kind of intense level for, this, so I'm going into my fourth year, so three years now. And it's been dramatically different because uh, our university, it's sort of weekly commitments. So... I've noticed that the phone calls have kind of uh, disappeared, but that was, I mean, I, I knew that was going to happen, and at sometimes it's scary, but at other times I'm quite thrilled because I think what it does is it, like, unmoors me from the dock of my own uh, expectations. So now I, and also simultaneously with the PhD, it's like going in a completely different world. So I like that. Hmm. Um but I do, I do miss the sort of, uh, yeah, the ramblings, uh, not the ramblings, but the kind of, you know, freedom of being a freelancer and doing what you want and making phone calls, knocking on doors, trying just, and then for the sake of it, just going somewhere as well, because you think there might be something interesting happening. But, uh, mm. but I don't know. I, I also think that sort of simultaneously my shift in uh, occupation, let's just say, is also a response to the dramatic, I think, decline in the uh, business of photography as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, which we're all, we're all sort of trying to deal with one way or another. But you started out doing architecture. Well, what did you want to do, like way back when you were when you were a kid? Did you always want to yeah. do architecture? No, no. Architecture was sort of uh, so. It actually, I do have a bit of a maybe a, a a long twisting road to where I actually got to. But when I was a kid, like uh, I don't know, maybe four, 13, 14, uh, I got a camera. And I don't even know why I got a camera. I think my dad just said, here, have a camera. I, I, I don't think I uh, ever expressed any interest in it. But for me, I'm very in tune, I think, to my youth and how my youth sort of uh, sparked certain things in me and why I've chosen to do certain things. And I think, so I'm born in 1973. And for me, that's a very kind of integral year because that places me you know, 10 or 11 in 1983-84, which was sort of the, the re-heightening of the Cold War. So that was very much prevalent. I mean, I remember, uh, was it Fences? That uh, crazy uh, British BBC documentary about uh, catastrophes of nuclear war. And anyway, so hmm. the Soviets were coming to get me. I always sort of felt that. And in trying to understand that, I would uh, sort of uh, voraciously read news magazines like Newsweek and Time and such. And I just loved looking at the pictures of this faraway place. And I think that was the first sort of trigger of photojournalism for me. And, and you know, when I was probably 16 or 17 is when I said, oh, somebody does that. That's amazing. Okay, well, maybe I can do that too. And, of course, there is a romance to it. I love the idea of travel and kind of being on your own and uh, into these far, strange places uh, uh, and that people actually did that. So... And also this this kind of uh, maybe accumulation of history. So to be a part of that to me was quite, I think, seductive. Um, but I, in high school, I went to this sort of special or alternative high school, and it was all focused on um, art. Uh, so I, that's where I really picked up photography. But in my final year of photography, I, I, I was thinking of going to a photojournalism program, and I had sort of two options. And I asked my photography teacher, should I go here or should I go here? And he, he looked at me like with profound disgust and said, neither. 
you suck as a photographer. I recommend you don't even study this. I was like, and that's an actual verbatim quote. Mm. And so that day I put away my camera and I didn't touch it for another like uh, eight years Jesus. or something. So. There's another example of a, you know, inspiring uh, teacher to, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, but I suppose, you know, I suppose you can either be kind of um, put off by those things or you can be in a way kind of driven by by them. You know, a lot of, a lot of people I talk to have similar stories and, yeah. You know the reaction can be can be polar opposites. You know as to whether you kind of take that uh, that sort of criticism to heart or whether you just think fuck that guy. I'm gonna you know yeah. prove him wrong kind of thing. I definitely have that in me to say well, fuck you. Like there's nothing better than somebody kind of saying you can't do that or you're no good at that. And I'm like I'll show you. But in this case it was strange because I just I quite literally I put them down and uh, that mm. was it. Didn't touch it again. Uh, and that's uh, and then I went to art school. I didn't even study architecture, but that was I mean I was always kind of interested in buildings and making stuff. So it was sort of well, I guess I'll be an architect. Uh, and then upon graduating uh, art school in 1996, I got on an airplane, flew to Europe, and uh, within two months I was working for uh, Rum House for a while, mm. quite a long time actually. Surprise! I thought I was just going to go and uh, I don't know sweep floors, and there I am, sort of. I remember one of the things was the new city of Hanoi, a city of 10 million people. I'm 24 years old. I thought this is ridiculous. Wow. And he was sort of obviously quite a well, quite a famous ar- architect at that point. I mean, yeah. even then. Yeah. Was it an t- internship or something? Or was it no, a proper it was, job? That you it was got? a proper job. Wow. And, uh, so you must have impressed them somehow. Yeah. So my, my, my uh, I don't know what it was. I think just kind of youthful naivete because i went into the office and i knocked on the door and yeah could i have a job and i remember the receptionist looked at me she says we don't do it that way but i guess i'll take your portfolio that was a tuesday and on a friday they called me in for an interview and uh they forgot about me i sat in the boardroom for about four hours waiting and uh (laughs) the guy came in and said all right we're gonna uh right well uh just go to the back corner and start working on this project and you know Two years later, I'm, I'm still there. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. So, so at some point, you you came back to photography, obviously. Yeah, it was there where I came into it because here I am coming in every day, five days a week, even though I'm working for one of I think the most exciting and interesting and uh, super intriguing people on the planet. I was still bored, and I think that idea of roaming and looking and kind of uh, uh, not knowing what's going to happen doesn't exist because it's a job right it's nine not nine to five but more like probably six to midnight kind of thing so one of the colleagues i worked with this guy named christos markopoulos his brother is uh, ari markopoulos and uh, he's like oh my brother's a photographer you should check him out and so i looked up ari markopoulos and he said i'll sell you his camera and so i bought ari markopoulos's camera and it was just some old pentax k1000 and i just started taking pictures and i remember the feeling of that steel in my hand to me was like oh right this is what i have to do Mm. and so ever since that point i mean it did take me about three years to actually finally quit the architecture world i did about five years total but that was sort of the spark of it and Mm. then that's when i knew okay i'm going to be a photographer what kind i don't know i don't care in fact, at one point, I thought I was even going to do paparazzi stuff, but whatever. I didn't care. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the first kind of major project that you got into then? Did you, was, it, was it the Chernobyl visit? The, the, the kind of that part of the world was your first kind of place um, of interest? No. Um, so when I left architecture, I started sort of somewhat immediately. I interned for the Toronto Sun, 
which is the equivalent of you know the sun here, kind of a trashy tabloid. Mm. Um, I did that for about four months, and then I, I just started freelancing in Toronto for various newspapers. And then slowly, I got lots and lots of assignments. It took about a year to kind of actually start really working. And for about two or three years, that's all I did was newspaper assignments because I knew that I didn't want to be a news- newspaper photographer. I knew that I wanted to sort of make bigger and uh, broader novelistic type of work. But again, I didn't have money. I didn't know how to do it. But in 2003, uh, invasion of Iraq happened in Afghanistan. Uh, my closest friend, uh, Larry Froelich, who's a writer, uh, known him since 1999, uh, we just decided, let's go to Iraq. Actually, it was Turkey. Um, so we went up to we went out to Kurdistan, uh, preceding the invasion of uh, Iraq. We went to the border, sort of sat around in these strange hotels full of journalists. Don McCollin was there. And I just remember sitting in some crappy hotel, and there was a TV crew from CBS talking, and they were like, we don't, oh, I don't know about you guys, but we don't, we're not allowed to fly business class anymore. And they were just kind of griping on about this really, to me, kind of terrifying or horrifying talk. And that was the moment I'm like, I, I, I don't, yeah. It's something was very unqueasy uh, or queasy for me about this uh, world because it was just sort of quite literally like dozens, if not a hundred journalists sitting around for something to happen. And that to me was kind of troubling. So Larry and I just sort of, took off. We had a, uh, this great guy, Aiden, who drove us around and Arkan drove us around. And we just sort of rambled through the countryside along the border of Iraq and uh, uh, Kurdistan. And then when the invasion happened, we just sort of slipped over into the other side. And so that was about a two, two and a half month trip. And uh, I just had my little contacts film camera and shot, I don't know, a few hundred rolls of film. And so that for me was really the f- to see if I could also do it is this mm. interesting and like what is this about how do you even construct a story and all this such stuff so that that for me was kind of the first thing it, it never really went anywhere we we uh, we did some stuff you know maybe back in canada but it never really went anywhere but more f- importantly i think it was um it was an experience to say that i can do this and i actually enjoy it and then i would say yeah chernobyl was sort of the first major project for me which was 2005 2006 that where I sort of absorbed myself into the world and I kind of figured out how I wanted to work and one of those things was to actually live there and be there. I didn't want to be the the guy in the hotel sort of talking about business class flights and right, such right. like that. Yeah, so you you kind of uh, arrived at the, the kind of photographer that you wanted to be in a way by, you know, by by having that experience and by kind of yeah. realizing that wasn't quite the world you wanted. But you were co- clearly yeah. you were still interested in the docu- world of documentary. Yep. yep. Yeah. Very much so, and that, that that became a book called Bastard Eden, the Chernobyl project. Which, as you say, you lived there for for, for three years or something. It was shot over a period of three years. Yeah. So my f- very first trip was actually New Year's of two thousand five. So two thousand four, two thousand five. I spent uh, New Year's there, and immediately I knew this is the place that I have to come back to. Came back in the f- uh, or sorry in the spring of two thousand five for six weeks. And then in the winter of 2005-2006, I lived there for about four months. Um, and then back again in 2007. And by 2000, late 2006, I had actually moved to uh, Ukraine. Mm. Um, I wasn't living in Chernobyl, but I would go up for weeks or months at a time and uh, just sort of stay in some crappy mm. village house and 
meander. Right, right. So, we, we, and were you in Ukraine for the Orange Revolution then? I think yeah, it was that's 2004. actually exactly 2004 was the Orange Revolution, and that's what brought me there. Right. Okay. Yeah, I see. And and the the Chernobyl project. I mean, what what were the sort of themes of that of that project or of the of the book mm-hmm. that that resulted? Yeah, I remember very clearly, like a really simple question. Because when I first went there for New Year's, I met this Ukrainian guy. He's like, "Let's, I'll show you. Let's just go see it. It's only an hour and a half north of Kiev, right? Uh, so we drove up there. And, you know, I was expecting uh, quite visible destruction and uh, uh, ghost towns and uh, dying people and just sort of the, the imagery of Chernobyl is so... Um, present and profound and uh uh like paul fusco's book which i think he did five years or so after the um, disaster five to ten years so that was sort of seared i think into this this cultural heritage that i was expecting of chernobyl but when i was there we were walking around driving around there's a hotel Mm -hmm. uh, in ivankiv which is sort of on the edge of the zone and there's a bar and there's a curry grill and there's people walking and there's weddings happening and there's a small discotheque and then we went to some of the uh the small villages surrounding this area and there they are they're working they're living they're sleeping they're whatever it is that normal people do and so it was really a counter narrative to what we actually think of chernobyl and that's where i said okay maybe what i can do as a photographer is offer that, offer a counter-narrative to these narratives that uh, are so structured. So for me, it was simple. What is daily life actually like in a post-atomic world? And Mm. there it is. It's just people walking and chopping wood and sitting inside and such. So that to me was really important. And so this idea of kind of the domestic landscape really, really kind of grew there. So I was very intentional in wanting to go inside houses and just sort of see what it was like and see if I could make these... um, these landscapes of domesticity, effectively, mm. yeah. And how did you take to that, to the life of kind of being in a, in a very kind of foreign, you know, environment, probably spending quite a lot of time on your own, I imagine. Yeah. Was that, did that suit you or did you find yeah. that difficult? No, I loved it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as I look back, though, I think I definitely went down a, a rabbit hole of, you know, disappearing almost off the grid completely. Uh, because some of the places where I was living, so I had an apartment in Kiev, but the majority of my work was, say, in Chernobyl or it was in the east of the country, smallish towns of maybe a couple hundred thousand people, or in the case of Chernobyl, like 10,000 people. Um, so, you, yeah, I've, and that was maybe about a 10-year period, really, mm. where I just kind of was pretty much off the grid. And when I look back at it now, I don't think I would never live like that. Good Lord. And... Uh, and yet there was something incredibly appropriate in doing it that way. And I was still fairly young. I mean, I was in my 30s when I was uh, doing that. So I had the kind of energy and the capacity to do it. Mm. Finances weren't necessarily always uh, a concern, even though they should have been. Um, but that also, I think, really taught me the only way that you can actually, I think, start to be engaged with photography because it is such a, a, a political practice is to, I think, fully immerse yourself and start to see it as a, as a collaboration or as a participation. And I really got kind of, I, I think one thing I was 
somewhat intuitive about was I can't just point my camera at something and leave. I just I, I can't function like that. And uh, and that by being in Chernobyl was something. I think that's what gave me those sort of insights to to work in such a particular way. Mm. Let's kind of move on to interrogations then, because that was your your kind of next project and became also a book. And I think it was probably the thing that that kind of put you on the map. I would say certainly it was yeah. a certain first thing I saw yeah. of yours, and 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 I imagine that was the case for a lot of people because it won the World Press Award, yeah. which you know that was controversial. For, yeah, right. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll talk about it. And for, but for whatever else you want to say about about that, um, it does get it does get you you know you some attention, I guess. Yeah. Um, but. You know, it's the sort of project that your reaction is like, "What? Wait, what?" You know, it's 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 yeah. it's very uh, arresting. I don't know if you anticipated that kind of a, a response in people. No, not at all. I, I I was. I mean, I'm still shocked at some of. Generally, it gets a very good response, and actually, the people who respond to it most are people from communities who fully understand this overt sense of. Uh, imbalance of the power structures. So it was uh, exhibited in Dhaka at Chobi Mela a few years ago in Bangladesh. And it got a really nice response there because there is this sort of notion of a police state. And of course, you can see what's happening with Shahid al-Alam right now in Bangladesh. Mm. Uh, but also in Ukraine and Russia, they they understood it. Uh, very few, I mean, there was a few people here and there, well, that can't be real because of this. But those outliers, I think, are always there. But I think generally people understood uh, immediately what was happening. Mm. Um, but I was more surprised, I think. that Well, what was striking for me, because it came out, when is it, like six years, seven, six, seven years ago now. You know, before all this idea of fake news and fake imagery and all that kind of thing, but some people were sort of like really dissecting some of the images and speculating about, well, how can it be like this? And for me, it's like, how can you make such snap judgments about something? Nobody has ever reached, especially these people who might question the veracity of these images. They've never reached out. They've never maybe been in this situation. It's sort of like, you know, armchair quarterback kind of thing. Mm. But I have to say, in general... I'd say 98% of the people who see the book and see the work, they immediately sort of understand what it's about. And for me, I don't if it was staged or not, I think that's an irrelevant question because you can still, it's not, but you can still sort of understand what the work is about, who cares if it's staged or if it's not. If it was staged, I would have alluded to that in the text. There would have been, or maybe photographically, I would have sort of, let something maybe slide into the frame, which then makes you sort of question the reliability of the image. But there's nothing there that's doing that. So for me, it's not about this stage. Versus it's, that's such a redundant argument. It should really be about how do we treat each other? How does power sort of work? And I think the turning point personally for me with interrogations is um, where I really started to figure out what that work could be about or what it should be about and then how I wanted to reflect that visually i was back home at christmas time it must have been like 2010 and i was just sort of inching or poking around this 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 project and on tv on cbc news peter mansbridge whatever canadians will know who i'm talking about but uh there was a famous sort of trial of uh, of an air force commander i think he was actually one of the prime minister's pilots and he was arrested for 
rape, and uh, he actually ended up murdering a woman. Uh, but they showed his interrogation on television, so it's it's Canada, it's nice, and everything's functioning. They had the, you know, the surveillance cameras up in the corners, and Peter Mansbridge was sort of doing a play-by-play of this interrogation. And one of the things he was talking about is see how the policeman is organizing or structuring the room. He wants to structure the room because he needs to destabilize the person coming in. And that completely blew my brains because that's exactly what was happening in Ukraine. And so when I first started that work, it was really, say, a project about a post-Soviet. Here's a post 20 years after the collapse, you know, typical cliche. Uh, but then when I saw Peter Mansbridge and these policemen behaving just as the Ukrainian policemen behave, I understood that, okay, our Canadian policemen are not going to uh, violently hit somebody like they would do in uh, Ukraine because there are cameras, etc. And yet the psychological manipulations were very much present mm. and the techniques were very much present. And so... It, for me, I understood that it can't just be a project about Ukraine and indict the Ukraine uh, uh, system. It has to be an indictment of this methodology for all of us. And I think that, for me, is when the project shifted. And I think people have also responded that they can see their own, you know, even if you get a speeding ticket, the policeman comes up to you and he's kind of overpowering you and knocking on your window. And can I see da-da-da-da? You know, so there are these kind of psychological... Uh, uh, machinations that happen and that to me is what that work is truly mm. about well we should explain what it is for, for, for the listeners who haven't necessarily uh, seen it and then we can we can pick it back up so um, the, the images are, are basically um, as the title suggests actual interrogations uh, in the Ukraine by uh, were they just normal police or are they special are they sort of normal yeah right regular normal. police every day they are actual, actual interrogation images um, and, and you know what you've been alluding to I suppose is, is the idea that when you first see them it's very it's kind of d- disconcerting because you're not sure whether they are set up or they, they look like the sort of thing that maybe could have been set up and of course they weren't so just explain how the, how the project came about really yeah, it was quite long. Um, the photography of it was over the course of a couple of years. But actually, on my very first visit to Ukraine, so during the Orange Revolution, I met this guy, and uh, I was there being a news photographer, photographing Yushchenko on the stage, and I just thought, this is pointless. I mean, I'm just making pictures of waving flags. I mean, anybody can do this. And I was speaking to this Ukrainian guy, and I remember he said to me, if you want to see Ukraine, you must go east. You know, just really understand it. You need to go leave Kiev. So we went, and he's like, I introduce you to a friend. His name is uh, X. Uh, and that friend was this policeman. And we were about the same age, so this is, you know, 14 years ago. So we were probably, you know, in our early 30s. And uh, he's like, yeah, come, I, I show you, uh, let's go around. Like, we're making our rounds tonight. And as he sort of grew through the ranks, you know, he, 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 he ended up becoming a, a major in the police department and was in command of basically half of this smallish city. And every time I would go out there, I would meet up with him and he would take me out and I would make photographs. But he, he, he was, a, I mean, incredibly, well, complex character, let's put it that way. But um, he would Google me all the time because he would say, don't use this picture, but you can use this picture. And I think he was doing it as a sort of a, a trust instrument, basically. And so I tried to follow his rules and, you know, do what he asked me to do, et cetera. 
Um, so we just started, I think, actually building a relationship. And in some kind of strange way, I actually liked him. And in some strange way, he actually liked me. I have a lot of conflict with him. And yet there was something engaging by him because he believed in what he was doing. So that was maybe like about six years where we sort of had this relationship. And so it took me about six years to finally say to him, like, what about these interrogations? Like, this is this is something. Can we actually discuss it? And a lot of the times, no, no, this is, this is not good. Don't talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then at about 2010, uh, you know, just all, I think because I'd been there so long by that point, I kind of could understand what was happening. And then I could communicate to him exactly what it was that I was looking for. And I remember he finally said, why did you not say this before? But I didn't know what to say. So basically, the, the, the idea was that he said, fine, you can photograph interrogations, but there are certain things that are going to have to happen. You need to speak to the people. I'm not doing it for you, and I can't do it for you. So he understood right away that sort of power dynamic. Yeah. I mean, he was very in tune with uh, equality and power, absolutely. So I had to, in my broken Russian, speak to people and say, this is what I'm doing. Can I photograph? Uh, and more often than not, people said yes. And so that's sort of how it began. But it did take me a while to sort of truly kind of understand those relationships and that I actually am a part of the photograph. I think that was another sort of major step in my career uh, or in my personal sense of my career was, oh, wait a second, I can't just observe. I'm actually participating. So I'm a part of this whole construct and I need to sort of address that. And I don't think you can maybe see it in the photographs, but the photographs are very sparse. I purposely made it sparse. I didn't want them active, like a photojournalistic way, which would be, say, a more reportage, like now they're in the corner and then here's a close-up of the hand smoking and that kind of thing. So I really sort of stripped it down and they do look theatrical, but um, that was also intentional, just to kind of strip away basically all photography and just to purely focus on the emotional, say, composition, rather than the composition itself. And then by doing that, I think it also shows um, the, the photographic gaze, which to me is very important, that I am pointing a lens at something, and that by doing so, I am implicating myself, but I'm also implicating all of us who engage with images. So in the end, interrogations became interrogations, not just because of the actual act of interrogating, but it's also... Let's now interrogate photography's role as a so-called interrogator of objective truth, right, etc. So. Right. So you know, I guess in a way, you you felt complicit in the whatever was happening in the in the room. Yeah, in in all photography, mm. um, I've never really enjoyed walking outside with the camera and just sort of taking pictures. I always felt maybe like. A, an imposter and sort of nervous and self-conscious. But I also just felt, and that's for me why, I, I, when I look back on the Chernobyl work, why I, I'm proud of that work because it might be a little bit naive photographically. And yet what to me works about it is that every person I talked to, I spoke, I actually spoke with them and I had conversations and talked stories and was invited into their house. So there really was, it might not necessarily say be a collaboration, but it's a total participation between all of us. We were making this together. Um, and that to me started to be reinforced in interrogations. And in interrogations, I just started to get very, maybe not nervous, but kind of anxious about 
what am I doing? Who am I to point this camera in such a uh, in such a space and in such a place? But it doesn't have to be something as traumatic as an interrogation. It can just be like me taking a picture of you right now. Mm. So who am I to do that? And what happens to these images? There's a third party out there, right? And that's, say, the spectator or the person who looks or consumes at these images. So that, to me, was very important to start at least acknowledging mm. all of these complicit parties together. Yeah, yeah. And I presume the kind of people getting interrogated, were they, were they a variety of kind of, was it petty criminals or was it a whole spectrum of people? Was it innocent and guilty uh, yeah, alike? whole spectrum. And, uh, I mean, there's certain techniques. This was also something else that, that, that was kind of really important to me was when I was working on it, I was, um, well, horrified mm. pretty much at uh, at the techniques that these police were because using. there was i mean just to sort of clarify for the for the people listening there were there was um you know physical violence involved very often certainly there was yeah. quite extreme physical intimidation if you, you know yeah. people putting a, a gun to someone's temple that's that's um, i imagine pretty terrifying even if you're pretty sure the person isn't going to actually pull yeah. the trigger yeah and uh, i it's, it, all of this I would say exactly. I think physical intimidation is 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 probably the best way to put it. So the kind of possibility that there could be real uh, physical uh, uh, danger happening was there, but they manipulated that, and they really would sort of make you flinch, kind of thing. The police would, but it wasn't so. And when it happened, for instance, the one photograph with the the gun to the guy's head that happened in. Three seconds. It whoosh, he whipped it out, put it against his head, and put it back. Mm. And dramatically, I, I mean, I was amazing. I even had a picture because I was stunned when I saw it. Um, but more often than not, it was just this sort of looming presence. So they were always seated, mostly ninety nine percent of the time. They had to be seated. And the policeman was always standing. So this kind of and the the way that one of the policemen would talk was they called him Chor Devil. That was his nickname on the street. And he did. He was this devil that just kind of was this force of uh, intimidation, basically. So anyway, sort of the idea with this was I was I was horrified with their methodologies as police. I'm like, these guys are corrupt and they're amoral. Da, 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 da. And my friend's uh, uh, Volvo was like, well, who are you to judge? Mm-hmm. You come from Canada. You're not a Ukrainian <laughs> policeman. You don't know the techniques that these guys... And in fact... This policeman is a decorated policeman. He's one of the youngest majors in the police force. He's done this, he's done this, he's done this. And this is how they're actually trained in their institution. So, And he was the one to kind of basically say, this is institutionalized violence. So you can't just fly in here with your morals and say, you should behave like Canadian police. Because you know what? Your Canadian police are actually kind of doing the same thing. Maybe the physical violence isn't there, but the intimidation is there. So that also, I think, was kind of... Exactly. Like, I, I, I don't necessarily want to be a, a, a judge and a jury. I, I have an opinion. I don't think it's right. But I also don't want to, say, moralize. Mm. So there is that kind of, I think there's that tension in the images. Mm. Did you find yourself becoming desensitized as you went um, along? No, the other way. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Because that would be a bit worrying if you did find yeah, that. Yeah, like, oh, you know, well, you know. oh, it's just another guy oh, getting another slapped. Guy. <laughs> no, I, totally the other way. And in fact, one day uh, I, I, I woke up and I said, I can't not. And I, I got up. I got on a bus and I uh, went back to Kiev and I left and I didn't come back for two years. Uh-huh. I think I was just so 
definitely was so absorbed within it because it was such an intricate project to do in terms of everything, like uh, language and dealing with all of these people. And more often than not, they would cancel and I would sit in this freezing cold police station for 10 hours a day, day after day after day after day, and nothing would happen. Uh, nobody would say so many things were happening, but also just being so exposed to, I think, raw violence. So it's not violence in the sake of war, but this intense psychological violence was, I think, really wearing on me dramatically. And so I just remember that morning. It was March of 2000. I think it was 11. And uh, I just left hmm. and never came back, basically. Hmm. I mean, I started going back later, but for two years, I just I'm out can't do this your sort of instinctive reaction in yeah, a way i need to go yeah this is too much uh what am i doing uh who am i all these kinds of questions so did you find that then the reaction from people who aren't you know from those kind of cultures with that kind of uh way of doing things was was a sort of um shock or something or or a kind of disbelief that that's how they did things because i don't find it particularly surprising or shocking really that that's how things are done i mean no. You know, I wouldn't find it particularly surprising or shocking if, if I discovered that people that was happening in London right now. You know, in in some exactly. police station that I'm no sure one's looking at. We could walk down at. the street and and go. Well, actually, I saw that the passport office is like close to here. I mean, okay, it's a passport office, but it's the same idea of like this institutional authority. I mean, yeah, it happens everywhere. And I think what it was with the work is that everybody knows about it, but I think this is one of the first times where it was sort of so viscerally made material and present mm. and i think that was shocking for people to sort of oh is this how we actually behave is this what we do mm. i don't know I, i'm speculating as to people's reactions but I, I think that probably has something to do with it but then of course the lame argument which is the sort of uh, argument when it with the world press photo was is it staged or not staged was that the controversy that you were alluding to then yeah i think so i think that's what it was about but generally again people because were because people quite wouldn't supportive. just simply wouldn't people wouldn't believe that yeah. it wasn't yeah. well that's just a bit stupid really i mean i yeah. you know i can see why these things need to be questioned but i mean yeah it, yeah i mean do you remember when you found out you'd won it? Do, what, do you remember where you were and how that phone call went or whatever it was, email or... Yeah, yeah. I was in um, uh, Berlin at the time, actually. And well, I forget if I just got an email or suddenly I think my email started like, oh, this is strange. I'm getting like all these emails suddenly. So I think that's how I found out about it was sort of people saying, oh, congratulations on the World Press Photo. Hmm. But I wasn't happy about it, actually. Really? No, I felt really bad about it. I really felt really bad about it. Why? Well, I I just, like, what have I done? What have <laughs> I done to these people? Like, again, what am I doing for my own sort of benefit? Oh, you were concerned about the people who were in the pictures? Yeah. yeah. Because presumably some of them were innocent and ended up, you know, being released. Yeah. Um, but they'd all given their permission, albeit yeah. under very... Um, under oh, extreme yeah, exactly. situations. Ex extreme, like, you know, the last thing, I I'm sure probably some of them thought, oh, maybe this will be good if they if he's there. I don't know. Right, yeah. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Or maybe I feel I have to do this. I mean, I mean, oh. Yeah, yeah, you might feel obliged. Like, you, they don't really know who you are or, yeah. you know, whether it's going to have a, a, an impact on them to say no. So, at what point, though, did you kind of, really focus on this idea of power being the kind of dominant theme, really, of that story and in, in some ways of, of your area of interest? Yeah, I think um, certainly 
it was formalized and uh, just starting around with 2005-ish, 2006, when I really, really became embedded, say, into Ukraine and Russia. Uh, you know, by moving there, living there, working among certain classes of people and traveling throughout the country and such, to start seeing how all of it plays out. And one of the profound things was on that first trip of the Orange Revolution, when I was flying back out of Kiev, I was at the airport and walking, you know, a zebra stripe right in front of the, you know, whatever the, the gate. And uh, I had my luggage and I saw at the corner of my eye this big black Mercedes sort of like, and I'm thinking, well, it's okay. I'm, I'm a nice boy from Canada. I'm going to walk across. I have priority. And here comes this sort of aggressive Mercedes saying, what is this pedestrian doing in my way? And he hit me, boom. Not hard, but he took me out pretty much, sort of hit me in my hip, and I, I fell, and I, of course I was pissed off. I'm like, who the fuck? And he's shouting at me in Russian. And my friend came up to me and goes, you can't, you, do you know who that is? I'm like, I don't fucking care who it is. Like, he hit me. I'm, I'm, I'm the weak one in this equation. Why do I have to? So that to me was a very, that's when I understood this mm. kind of, um, I think what I called it in, a, in, a, in one of uh, this Guggenheim application that I wrote was this notion of the curse of power and the wounds it inflicts on those who don't have it. Um, and this, this kind of the haves and the have not to me was a very interesting Mm. Um, space to explore because I had witnessed it personally. I was, you know, implicated in this as well. Yeah. So you were interrogating yourself and 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 the nature of documentary and what your responsibilities are in that equation. What conclusions have you kind of come to? I will never ever make another project like interrogations. In fact, I would, if I could, I would probably burn every copy. I mean, in some way, I'm proud of that work because I worked incredibly difficult and uh, the relationships that I formed with people were so intense and yet in the same sense what it really I think said to me is we need to completely rethink how documentary photography and photojournalism is enacted and I don't want to say it can't exist because it should but I want to know more about what photography can do and how do we responsibly go about doing that um, which then, in a way, actually led to the, the the next project. Which, you know, I did some things in between, but really the next significant project was War Sand. And if you look at that project, there's no people at all, mm. and that was kind of by choice, I think, because it was this idea of uh, is photography even can we even take pictures of people? Like, I don't know. I still don't know. <laughs> I'm really kind of puzzled by it. So. Again, which also is a question that I would like to ask in my, my PhD, which is basically around what are the space that images today are made in? So what are the kind of ethical constructions, the data constructions, the uh, um, moral constructions, the military or the corporate constructions that sort of fully surround us today? You know, here we are, where are we in? Uh, Victoria. Victoria, right? And I just was going walking around this morning and there's like Belgravia Square and, you know, these massive homes. Da, da, da. So London as a center of corporate wealth. So how do I then act as a photographer amidst all this intense corporate capitalism wealth? Can I? I don't know. Hmm. So that's something to me I think we need to start acknowledging at least. Yeah, 
part of it is the way in which the world has changed so significantly in terms of how photography has to operate in this digital age i mean what 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 are your kind of thoughts on how we should maybe reimagine mm-hmm. you know the medium in that context yeah i think I, th- I definitely start to see a shift um and maybe it might be language but maybe that's the first way we start is through the language that we use so when i teach i'm very conscious not to i try but it's so ingrained into me to never use the word subject so my subjects or when you photograph your subject da, 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 i don't I think it might be minor, but that already says that I'm the Lord and that's my pauper. And mm. I think that's inappropriate. Um, so I've tried to, to see it much more on uh, an equivalent space, say. So uh, to really be conscious of the power dynamics. Um, you know, who am I with this camera? Where do I come from? Uh, what has funded me? What are the kind of uh, driving mechanisms that... I need to construct these photographs, but then how do you match that to with whom you choose to participate with? And I think for me, participate is a very key word. And it's also, I think we also really, really, really need to understand how images are used and how they situate themselves and how others will, um, say, interpret or participate also in those images themselves. So... It's kind of multi multi layered. So number one, I think it's sort of a, a responsibility that the photographer must take in a much more proactive way. And that might just be simple things of when I'm in London photographing to acknowledge the absolute inequality and wealth disparity that happens here. So a city of capital is completely manipulated and defined by a very, very, very small percentage. And yet it has such vast implications on this city itself. So now, how do I work here? What can I do? Mm. Do you you think that, in a way, this is the first time these kind of questions are being asked, really, of photography? Because I'm wondering about how you're... Because, I I mean, I, I, I remember when I did my photojournalism course 20 years ago now. No, more than that. And none of this stuff was really talked about. I mean, mm. your students, I imagine, are really kind of immersed in in those questions in, yeah. in, a, in a way that certainly I don't think yep. perhaps our generation was. Yeah, definitely. I, I do see, uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm not even that old. I mean, I really started mm. my photojournalism career in 2001. It's mm. not that long ago. No, no. And yet I see profound shifts and probably only in the last three or five years. Uh, dramatic shifts and um however you know if if anybody's ever read alan secula i mean he was talking about this in the 1970s and the early 1980s uh talking about documentary photography's sort of uh uh and, and capital's role within documentary and this notion of the auteur or the genius and it's completely reflected today you know go to oh i have my exhibition at Arles. okay so this notion of the genius has been around which to me I think has, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, w- what does make me happy and why I actually really start to enjoy teaching is because they're sort of teaching me to behave in a modern, contemporary way, to kind of get out from some of my traps that I learned from, say, previous generations of photojournalists, which comes from a very, very small, particular universe. And so when I talk to my students about photojournalism and about documentary, I mean, Frankly, I, I, uh, they, 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 they say, well, what's the relevance of this? Mm. And they have sort of 
intuitive response to, but who am I to do this? And uh, I have one project, which is basically the very, very first assignment for a first-year student. It's called 50 Strangers, and it's just to go out on the street or whatever, post an ad or something on Facebook or talk to people, knock on somebody's door. But it has to be somebody you don't know and make a picture. And oh, you know, we get in these incredible discussions about, but who am I to, to go to a stranger and say, can I take your picture? I have no right to do that. Da, da, da. So I'm, I'm glad to see that these questions are definitely being posed. I'm curious to see now how they will start maybe in five years when they start going into a, a, a working context, how these will actually come about. Mm. But it's definitely shifting, thousand mm. percent. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you about War Sands because you have already mentioned it and, and um, that was also uh, a project which became a book. Can you just explain something about it? Yeah, War Sand. Uh, well, first it was counter to interro- interrogations where I said, I don't want to take pictures and I don't want to be with people and I don't want anything to confront me. Uh, but I've always had a, a fascination with World War II and, you know, again, this kind of romance of it with movies especially I, I used to love watching World War II movies um, so basically uh, uh, it sort of comes from a story of my grandfather who was a great storyteller who told me this story about these nine British commandos who crossed the English Channel wandered the beaches of Normandy and their mission in New Year's of 1943 was to gather sand and bring these sand samples back to Churchill and Eisenhower and to the scientists and this this sand would determine if D-Day could happen. So it was still in the planning stages. Right. Now I didn't quite understand this initially. When I when I read about this story, what what I suddenly realized was they they were actually worried about literally whether the yeah. the beaches were going to be str- strong enough to exactly. yeah. support the uh, the machinery and all that. So yep. they they needed to literally yeah yep. figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. So and so it kind of like again this counter narrative I think is also something that runs through my work is but how else can we sort of understand uh, a, a major historical moment? And so I started to, s- to think about the sand itself and the story of my grandfather. And so I, I just kind of uh, speculatively... Actually, I came across an article about microarchaeology, which is the, the, the science of archaeology through microscopes. Um, and uh, I, I just sent an email through a friend of a friend to a, a, an atomic physicist at Queen's University in, in Kingston, Ontario. And I said, I've got this sand from D-Day. What do you think? Can we just look at it in a grander scale? And he said, yeah, okay. Um, but as we started going through and looking at the sand with a microscope, he said, do you know what we're looking at here? I said, sand? He said, no, shrapnel. It's like, oh. He goes, in fact, there's such a huge amount of shrapnel in these images that a vast percentage of these beaches is actually shrapnel. Now, when he says vast, it was like 4 to 8% uh, of the sand content had the shrapnel. But that, to me, was sort of such a, an amazing, uh, uh, eye-opening, wowing experience. And then he started to show me images of millions and hundreds of millions year olds, uh, micro-fragments of... Uh, of uh, of meteorites and such. So suddenly time becomes a whole issue. And So that's where kind of the, the initial genesis of the project was like sand has memory. Hmm. Sand can tell a story and this tiny, 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 tiny thing 
this kind of forensic tracing of something can occur. So that to me was 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 fascinating to then unpack it. And the more that I started to unpack it, all of these other things started to flow into it. You know, I was I stayed in a town called Bayeux, and Bayeux has the Bayeux Tapestry, which is you know the 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 journey of um, uh, William the Conqueror, except coming from Britain to France, it's going the other way, which is exactly a thousand years ago what uh, uh, the Allies did, right? Crossing the Channel, getting in their boats, invading this land, etc. So all these kinds of things started to sort of um, come out of it and watching movies. So this collision of a forensic uh, examination of something, but also this narrative examination of something. And then those two worlds come together and create mm. whatever. And then, I mean, in terms of what you actually photographed, as well as using this kind of micro photography or, or whatever one should call it, um, you you shot a lot of sky. Yep. What was the kind of thinking behind that? Yep. the 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 sky was sort of twofold. So one thing I learned about D Day was it was supposed to be June fifth, nineteen forty four, not June sixth. Because of a dramatic uh, storm that had happened, and so at the last minute they decided to postpone it. If they couldn't go on June six, it would have been June eighteenth. Um, and then, if it wasn't June eighteenth, I think they would have had to wait till September. But by then, they figured, well, it's too late; it's going to be winter. And on June eighteenth, it was the largest channel storm in twentieth uh, century history. So, wow. you know, so we'd you, not me, you guys would all be speaking probably Russian, today, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so that was one thing. So again, these little minuscule narratives that emerge that have such profundity on the course of history was one thing. But also weather sky, uh, to me, is looking up at the cosmos. So I was very particular in the structure of the book that I wanted to kind of start from a, a, a macro and slowly you work through it and you get down to the micro. Mm. So I start with the it, book opens with, uh, I think, seven pictures of the sky then you go into these seascapes, so the your view sort of goes down, but you also are looking out at the horizon, which is, I was trying to think about what a soldier would be looking at as they make their way towards the coast of Normandy. Uh, then you go into more landscapes, so now we're on the, the, the land of Normandy, and then we go into the sand. So in a way, it was, uh, say, conceptual or artistic choice, but in, it was also just a pragmatic structural choice. It mm. felt I needed to to sort of have something interstitial between the sand and something else. And you collaborated with, what's the name of that well-known book designer who you, you work yeah. with? Toon, Toon van der Heiden. Toon. Um, he's, he's Dutch, is he? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So can you kind of um, give us a sense of, of how, of what, what you know, the importance of his input, as it were? And were there yeah. times, you know, was it... Was he able to bring stuff to the project that, that you know you might not necessarily have, have oh, thought about? Absolutely. So Tony and I worked together on interrogations, mm. and he was uh, um, a critical component of that book. Where at first in interrogations, I wanted it to be in, I, the interrogation images themselves was actually a very small part of it. I had you know ten years of work that I felt I had to show everything, and he was really able to incise it down to what needed to be said. So what I love about working with Tone is, I, I wouldn't call him a book designer, but I would call him uh, an editor, basically, just as uh, a novelist works with an editor who's able to structure and to see and to really understand narrative really well. And so War Sand was such a huge project that normally I would always be making dummies and such, but this was such a vast project that I just was accumulating material. 
So I basically came to him, not literally, but you know, like as if I had a box of stuff, and I said, "Here, Dan, start putting it together." So I gave him, you know, two thousand images, all different kinds, and uh, uh, he just sort of disappeared for a few weeks and, and made a very, very quick uh, compilation of something. And so what he does is understand the story that needs to be told. I think just like me, that he first and foremost he serves the story. Uh, and the design is just a way to kind of uh, package it or to tidy it up, basically. Mm. Yeah, which is so important because, you know, I think sometimes you just get too close to the project when it's your own project, don't you? You need, you need a, a kind of yeah. dis- dispassionate um, view from someone who's, you know, really yeah. kind of knows what they're but doing. But also, like with him, he just gets so into things, too. He's, you know, he's doing uh, as, I don't know, 53 or something, but he behaves as if he's... 16 which i love because he's smiling and he's like oh i learned about this and you know he just i can tell he's so involved in it and yet it's also he understands it's not his work so as you say he is able to look at it in a much more uh critical way uh as opposed to me like with with warsan i was blocked i knew the the ideas behind it say the essence of what kind of publication i wanted it to be but i just didn't even know where to begin Mm, yeah. I had loose, very loose fittings, and and he tidied it up. Right, sure. right. So on the subject of photo books, yeah, I think you know one of the reasons we we are now doing this was because of a, a, a comment that you made on Facebook, which I um, which I noticed and was interested in, and thought, oh yeah, I'd love to get Donald on the podcast, and and it was uh, I think it was about photo books, and there was a. A question of whether photo, photo books need a reset. Do you remember? Do you oh, remember? Yeah, 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 what, yeah. what was the essence of, or what is the essence of your of your views on on that? I think you, you mentioned the exclusionary elitist rhetoric of publishing. Yeah, I forget. There was something that really I forget what it was, but there was something particular that was used in the advertising of that. Now, I should sort of walk that back because somebody who was involved with it sort of contacted me and gave me a little bit more context. I mean, that's the problem with social media, right? You can just fly off the handle. Oh, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. But I still do believe, I mean, in principle, I love the idea that let's actually rethink the notion of the photo book and not just the book itself, but actually the infrastructure that allows these books to occur. Because to me, there's definitely something that uh, has shifted and it's changed and um we do need to rethink about the, say, the relational aspects of the economy of making these books. How do we make these books? Why do we make these books? For whom, etc. So, in that notion, yes, we do need a reset. Uh, a reset? No, what was it? A reset. Re- reset. Yeah. Just like the Russia-America relations. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, uh, Rob, maybe he's going to kill me if I use his name, but I'll just say Rob. I'm sure we all know. Yeah, which. I can't even remember who. I don't know who are there, any of the people involved were i just remember the actual yeah but rob said to me and he made uh, i liked his point sort of tangential to mine and and completely separate he said but if you reset using the same people who are actually involved in photo books and what kind of reset can it be why are we not drawing in from completely different communities and such and i thought that was a valid point yeah it was something about just if you're just reinforcing that the means of cultural production how can you really reset something i think that was the essence of it wasn't it Yeah. yeah Yeah, and I think that's all I really sort of ask for in anything that we do is is this notion of cultural production and ask yourself, so what goes into these uh, parameters of production mm. to think relationally, um, mm. relational, 
is yeah. to me important. And what about photojournalism itself in terms of a kind of reset for that? I think you've said yourself that it's, you know, it's at a point of transition. Yeah. I mean, okay, one thing for me is photojournalism is a byproduct of capitalism. That's what it's for. It's to help create newspapers, magazines, journalism, which not that journalism is a vessel for advertising, but photojournalism is a byproduct of a corporate culture. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with it is that we try to sort of avoid it. And I think by avoiding it, we've sort of given ourselves this, this almost holy role of, of observation, shining a light in dark places, bearing witness and such. When true, I do believe that photography can be such a profound fantastic way to uh, point out our political um, inabilities to do whatever. Uh, I think it is a profound way to sort of say, but look at what's happening. And yet in the same way, I think that's also what's got us into trouble is because we have never sort of acknowledged that, yes, I'm working for Time Magazine, and Time Magazine is a, well, I don't think it is anymore, but from a, a multi-billion billion dollar corporation. So, again, how is that going to affect how and what stories get told and how we choose to tell those stories and such? Mm. That's what I want to know. And I think it's starting to change. But then, of course, there's also the voices of who is photojournalism. I mean, it's quite obvious today. Who is photojournalism? It's... Uh, most people coming from London, Paris, and New York and in those surroundings and who has access to photojournalism. Again, it's a very sort of limited point of view. Uh, who are photo photojournalists? Very much uh, a male culture. I mean, you see that in Perpignan, this sort of uh, extreme machismo and such. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's very much on the agenda as a, an issue in photography in general. I think, you know, that uh, things like I'll... Ha having um you know very very heavy bias towards male yeah. uh, photographers um yeah. what are some of the other controversies you've been uh, you've been uh, <laughs> um, struck yeah, by lately well, trying not to be so much anymore i mean one thing in a way i i i've certainly have curtailed my social media uh, engagement just because i do think at times i i can be rather impulsive and i and, and maybe perhaps i don't fully think through everything so i just sort of react in, immediately and yet it's also i think been been great because you do open up these conversations and i love it when somebody else might want to disagree with me but let's actually disagree in 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 in, in a smart way in a clever mm. way and actually let's get to something but um, I, I think also, I mean, I'm, I'm trying so hard to, to just recenter who I am and, and to really consider what it is that I do, that maybe in that case, I'm starting to maybe drift away from the actual immediacy of the arguments. And again, which is a reason for the PhD is because maybe I can, I don't know if it sounds egotistical or not, but can, what can I contribute and can I contribute? And if, if, if I take it in a much more methodical way, can, there, can, I, can I also be a voice? I mean, somebody who I deeply admire is uh, Shahid Alam, the um, uh, you know, founder of Drake and Pashala and Chobi Mela. And he's such a powerful voice, I think, for his community, but all communities. But the way he does it is such a, 
I think a really uh, gentle, thoughtful, but also provocative and subversive way. And I would like to sort of be able to model my own thoughts as he does, because he's also very much a man of action, which mm. I think is fantastic. Um, and so I would also like to have action involved. And I think social media is great to sort of throw knives, but then what does it become? I don't know. Yeah. Well, we should mention Shahid is currently um, in prison. Yeah. There's been a lot of engagement, I think, on social media, you know, to, to sort of raise awareness of that fact because um, people should know that, that you know, it's a, a pretty cut and dry case of um, uh, someone's, uh, you know, human rights being violated. Yeah. And um, there, are, there are petitions you can sign. All that. I just This is just a reminder for the listeners to, 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 to you know, Google Shahid Alam and, and, and sign the bloody petition at least or, or you know, put stuff yeah. off on social media because I yeah. guess it all... Ultimately, that maybe helps to some extent. I mean, maybe in a way that's what social media can do is that uh, I did started posting for a little while, um, just sharing articles about what was happening in Bangladesh on my own news feed, just to sort of, you mm. know, kind of keep it going. And so in a way, I think that's what, 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 what it can do. Uh, and this, I hate to, you know, hashtag free shahoot, free Shahid al-Alam, but in a way it, it is, and I see it every day now, and everybody's sharing it. So can it do something? At least it's maybe starting to create some kind of awareness or mm. engaging something. Um, and that's also, I think, what I, I, I do miss in photography is that we forget about the uh, the impact that photography can have. It, it And it doesn't have to be a book or an exhibition or even published in a magazine or something or online, that photography is such a, powerful medium that it can actually i think be inserted say into the public consciousness uh a counter strategy to um what's happening mm. politically so one of the questions i i like to ask is what has being a photographer taught you about yourself oh um that's a tough one yeah it is, isn't it? I, yeah. don't know, I don't know if I'd be able to answer it. I think, well, I think one thing for me is, and it's something we talk about, I talk about a lot with students, is um, just the notion of uh, empathy. And that I think it's such an important thing to have, not just as a photographer, but as a human, just to sort of be able to understand where somebody else is, is coming from. Uh, I don't think I have all that much, but I'm trying to... Uh, uh, reach out to that notion of, I think, empathy to see who, who why are you, you, uh, I think is an important question. Um, and I also think by the things I've done and say the last 20 years have allowed me to, well, as I said, I can be impulsive. That's part of my problem maybe to not necessarily be so impulsive, but to just, you know, take one step back and be able to reflect. And it might be um, not just on grand ideas, but also just being like, okay, let's today, when I take the tube to go visit my cousin at Covent Garden, like just to take a, a few seconds and maybe to reflect on this conversation that we've had or something mm. like, just 
to 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 stop and to slow i think a little bit is, yeah. is to me important yeah that makes a lot of sense to me you mentioned um, insecurity somewhere. I, I was. I'm, al- I'm always slightly surprised to hear that people um, have insecurity. Oh. I don't know why, but is that still is that still something you? Oh God, um, yeah. Is a challenge for you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, insecurity and uh, uh, maybe not a lack of self confidence because at times I feel when I'm in the middle of something, like when I was working on Warsand, I loved it. I felt so good and happy and because uh, it was fun and it charged me and so it gave me confidence. Um, but generally, I think, I definitely, I've always been insecure. Kind of like, oh, should I? Yeah, but, kind of goes with the territory, I think. I, think it, it, I, I also think sort of a, a certain insecurity also gives you vulnerability and I think that's also very important, certainly to have as a, as a human, and it's also, I think, important to have that as a photographer and to be able to share that vulnerability with others. And that's what I remember what I learned in Chernobyl. I was speaking with this um, elderly woman. She was oh, like 85 or something like that and very lonely in her old little village home in the outskirts of the Chernobyl zone and such like that. And I just said uh, something like, well, tell me your story, something like that. She said, really? You want to listen to my story? I said, Yeah. And I did. I, I mean, that's why I was there. I was like, I just let me hear you talk. I, I, I'm fascinated by your own experience. And the way that she was so, but you actually want to listen to me, that really kind of shocked me uh, and said a lot to me as a photographer and as a human to just sort of shut up and maybe to listen to others and let's hear what you have to say. Um, that, yeah, that to me, I think, was uh, probably one of the more important moments of my photographic life. Mm. That's funny because I echo something that um, Daniel Schwartz said, who was my previous guest. Who you know the listeners will will might, might remember. He he said something very similar about basically you know you got you got to listen to people. You know it's pretty mm-hmm. fundamental. But yep. you know as photographers we all need to have that. And I think that empathy thing and and um, vulnerability are, they're almost they're very sort of interrelated. I think. I think so. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just want to say thank you very much for giving me the time. I really appreciate it. it's been great chatting. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. It's been fun. Cheers, man. Thank Cheers. you. And best of luck with your PhD. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>